John chapter 7. I'm going to read, um, I'm going to jump right in and read this passage. It starts in verse 53, which in your Bible might actually be under the chapter 8 heading. Uh, We'll talk about why all of that is in just a moment. But chapter 7, verse 53, I'm going to read down through chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. One of, our, one of our distinctives as a church, one of the things that makes us distinct from other churches, is the, the expositional, um, verse-by-verse preaching of God's Word. So as a church, we believe that God's Word has the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. And as such, we hold to the, the inspiration, the infallibility and the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so this morning, we, as we continue our study of John's Gospel, um, we face a, a very challenging passage. One that very possibly doesn't belong here. If you use a Bible that was published after, say, 1900, um, this passage will probably be set apart in brackets. And there will probably be a footnote that says something to the effect of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Now remember, when John wrote this, when he actually wrote out this by hand, he didn't put the chapter divisions in, he didn't put in the verse numbers, that happened in the Middle Ages, and we are really thankful for that, or you would have a hard time, we would have a hard time finding these things. But most Bible scholars, that is, most who are involved with looking at the text of Scripture, translating it from the original languages, looking at all of the old manuscripts that we have and and checking and double-checking, and there are teams of people that do this. Most scholars believe that verse 53 of chapter 7 through 811 should not actually be located here in John's Gospel. Here's the problem. We believe, as I said, that the Bible is inerrant, meaning that there are no mistakes, there are no errors But we have to say that it is inerrant in the original writings. What John wrote was inerrant. It was exactly what God wanted him to write. Um, We say this because we know that there have been scribal errors, uh, those who have been hand-translating copies of the Bible. Sometimes there are some mistakes that they make, and generally, almost always, they are very minor mistakes, Um, punctuation, spelling, a word left off here or there. Uh, In fact, there is a copy of um, one of the versions of the King James Bible that recently was auctioned. Uh, They actually had the nickname the Wicked Bible. The reason was, this is just recently auctioned in the last year, and the reason that it was called the Wicked Bible is because it left off in one of the commandments the word not when they were translating it. So it actually said, thou shall commit adultery. 
That was a mistake. That was not what Moses wrote. Moses wrote, you shall not. There are many instances where in Bible translation, in order for certain phrases, in order for certain words to make sense in English when they've translated it from uh, Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, the translators actually have to add some words. And usually it's pronouns or modifiers so that they, they can understand, so that we can understand what is actually being said. Um, and especially in the modern translations, they'll be in, in, in italics or there'll be a footnote there so that you'll know that the author actually didn't write that word, but it is necessary in order to, for the sentence to make sense. So when John sat down to write this gospel, he made no mistakes. Um, he may have spelled some words wrong, although I doubt it. That's not what we're talking about. What we really mean is that the facts are true. The facts of what Jesus did and said. He didn't, John did not make any mistakes in the facts about Jesus. He did not make any mistakes in the claims about Jesus that he made or that others made about him. One of the other challenges with Bible translating is that we have no original copies of any of the books of the Bible. Um, in other words, we don't have John's handwritten manuscript. We have some very, very old ones, but we don't have John's. We don't for many other historical documents either, by the way. It's very few and very uh, recent that we have. But we do have many ancient copies of the Scriptures, and so researchers are always studying them, and they're, and they're even finding additional copies every so often. Think of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were just discovered in the 1900s. Sometimes there are discrepancies, and so some ancient manuscripts might not contain certain passages, like this one. Others will contain them, but they usually just add a word or two, or maybe a verse here or there. But in the New Testament, there are only two of the longer passages that fit into this category. Usually it's just a, a word or two, or maybe a verse or two that's, that's off, and you'll find it in the footnotes um, when you're reading along, but there are two longer passages that fit into this category. This passage here in John and then the end of Mark. And several years ago when we were preaching through Mark, we addressed that one. And I just want to make one clarifying comment before I confuse you with all of this, um, or maybe after I confuse you. When it comes to this translation challenge, Anytime scholars, Bible translators, um, have found an issue like we see here, it never contradicts any other passage. It never compromises the truth of the gospel or the trustworthiness of God's word. In fact, it's, it's always something that looks like it should be there and actually serves to, to support the overall message. And that's why it's included in the, in the footnotes or in brackets like this. And so when they put the copies of Scripture together, even in recent days with our modern translations, they're essentially saying, hey, we're going to include this. John may not have actually written these words, or if he did, he, he maybe didn't put this paragraph here, but boy, it sure looks like something that, Jesus, that John would write or, or something that Jesus would actually say or do. It isn't something crazy and off uh, off the mark concerning Jesus. Now, for those of you who are concerned about such things as we talk about Bible translation, and I have to kind of go through this because um, of the debate out there. We could just kind of blow right through this, but I want to go through this so that you're equipped because people will say, see, see, John didn't write this. It says right in there that John probably didn't write this. But we need to be equipped and so if we're concerned about such things, I want to give you four concerns that we have with this passage. This will be really quick, and then we will go through the meat of the passage. Um, so these are four reasons why maybe, maybe this shouldn't be here. And then I'm going to give you four reasons why it should, and, and then we're going to go ahead and go through the passage. So this part is going to be brief. So the four concerns, it's going to be really quick. First, this passage, 753 to 811, is entirely missing from any copy of Scripture that we have before the 5th century A.D. It's not even there. Just these verses are not even in it. 
And then secondly, when it does appear in copies of Scripture, we don't have very many copies before 400 A.D., but in the ones that we do have, when it, when it does appear after 400 A.D., different manuscripts, different handwritten copies of John or in the New Testament, place it in, in ten different places, either in John, mostly in John's Gospel, they put it in a different spot in John's Gospel, or uh, even in a place in Luke's Gospel. Um, there's one manuscript that puts it in Luke. So in some of the oldest copies of the Bible that we have, these verses are either not there or they're found in different places. The third concern is that the wording and the sentence structure of this, of these verses, is unlike any of John's other writings. So, for example, he uses the phrase scribes and Pharisees here, but everywhere else he just calls those same people the Jews. You've noticed that probably as we've walked through these first seven chapters. And then the fourth concern, so not only is it kind of sound different than him, the fourth concern is that the earliest commentaries by the church fathers, um, none of them include this passage. They just skip right over these verses as they're writing a commentary on John's gospel. I'm telling you all of this, as I said, because we are people of the truth. And so we must proclaim the truth, and so we can't kind of brush these concerns under the rug. However, there are, four, there are good reasons, and I'm going to give you four of them, to include this in Scripture. So four good reasons, to there maybe are others too, but four good reasons to include this here in Scripture. And for starters, this absolutely fits the character of Jesus. This looks like something Jesus would say and do. It's not totally out of character for him. It also fits the character of the, of the Pharisees, for that matter. This looks like something they would say and do as well. This narrative matches the criteria used for the Gospels in, in what Jesus truly did and what Jesus truly said. It doesn't contradict any other passage and it even serves to, to enhance our understanding of, of who our Savior is. Secondly, down in verse 12, Jesus makes the second of his I am statements. He says, I am the light of the world. In all of the other I am statements that Jesus makes, so I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, and so forth. In all of these other I am statements Jesus makes, it is, they are pro preceded by a narrative that gives them some context. And, and, and so uh, this passage verse, through verse 11 sets the context to verse 12. It helps verse 12 make sense. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That makes sense considering what he just said to the woman. Third, we won't really see this one until we get down to verse 20. Um, but if this belongs here, if this belongs in, in, these, uh, in this section of Scripture, then it means that all of this, through verse 11, actually happened in what was called the court of women in the temple. That, that's where the treasury was, as verse 20 says. That's where the, the women were allowed to be in the temple. And so that has obvious special significance to this story with this woman in front of all the people, including other women who see this whole thing unfold. And then the fourth reason to include this in Scripture, and this really is the focus that we're going to take today. There are many other passages, both in the Old and the New Testament, that support all of the theological underpinnings of this interaction. Things like law and gospel, grace and mercy, forgiveness, and repentance. So regardless of who wrote this passage, whether it was John or Luke, and, and I believe it was one of those two, this rings true. Despite the disagreements about the passage, nearly all scholars, nearly everybody agrees that this account is authentic of Jesus. And, and, and not only that, but it speaks to our condition as sinners in need of a Savior. So I believe this should be here. And I believe we should look at this today. 
So I'm going to read it again, and then, and then we'll pray. And then we'll go through it. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We just pray. Father, what we do not know, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Help us to see the wonderful grace of our loving Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. So in this simple scene, um, there are many theological depths to wade through. And each of them forces the reader, or really forces the one who is watching all of this unfold, and this forces us to, to reckon with these truths in our, own, in our own hearts and minds. And so this morning we're going to look at just three theological depths that pertain to this, really that pertain to the gospel. Um, and the first is the relationship between the law and the gospel. This really takes us down through verse 5. Let me just read uh, 3 to 5 again. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? The trap is set. The trap is set. So if this scene truly fits into the the narrative right here, then if you remember from our look at chapter 7, the Feast of Booths is over and Jerusalem is returning to normal. All the worshipers who had come to the city for the the festival are are making their way back back to their own homes and, and things seem to be quieting down a little bit in the city of Jerusalem and around the temple especially. In the first couple of verses here, kind of just depict a a typical life, a day in the life of Jesus. Everybody returns home, including Jesus. Luke chapter 21, verse 37 tells us that Jesus was was actually staying, lodging at the Mount of Olives, uh, probably with some friends. And so when he returns there, he's going home. So early one morning, he heads to the temple where he sits down to teach all the people, uh, verse 2 says. At this point in the story, really the only peculiar thing is that he's teaching in the temple. But this has happened a few times. In fact, just in the previous verse, he had been teaching in the temple. It's not all that peculiar, especially in the context of these couple of chapters. But there is one little detail there that will help to explain the actions of the scribes and the Pharisees a little bit later. And that's this phrase... All the people. All the people. So we have to assume that this means all the people in the temple that morning. He's not teaching all the people on earth at that moment. He's not teaching all the people in Jerusalem that moment. He's teaching all the people who are there with him. Uh, Probably this is all the normal temple-going people in the temple that morning. Uh, We probably would assume that the priests and the scribes and Pharisees the religious leaders, maybe there are a few of them there. They come in in a moment. But as they gather, this is the people. This is just the normal people going to temple. Let me give you a, a clue um, about this phrase, all the people, and then we're going to come back to it in a bit. The law said this about stoning idolaters specifically. 
Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 to 11. I'm going to read a portion of the law. It says this. If your brother, the son of your mother, or the son of your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, let's go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. Afterward, the hand of all the people, the law said. Now listen to a similar law. It's Deuteronomy 17, verses 6 and 7. It says, On the evidence of Two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." Punishment in ancient Israel under the law was to be doled out at the hand of all the people. Now remember, in John chapter 5, verse 18, uh, we read this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this is the scene. According to the law, uh, let me read another one in Leviticus 24, verses 13 to 16 says this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who is cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. So this is the scene. The, the scribes who were the experts in the law, they were essentially lawyers, and the Pharisees, who were really kind of legal eagles, they were looking for a way to shut Jesus up permanently. This story is not about this woman. She is just a, a pawn in their game here. This story is about Jesus. So at this point, as this dramatic scene begins to unfold, Jesus is interrupted by the Jews, by the scribes and Pharisees, who bring in this adulterous woman. And, and while this verse here in verse 3 kind of reads that this was very orderly, you can imagine it was chaotic, and you can imagine it was especially tense. But it's important to remember that this isn't really an angry mob uh, like we will see later in John, where they start yelling, crucify him. This is actually a legal proceeding. That's why the scribes are there, the lawyers. They're there to argue the case based on the law. The woman here is not named. We don't know who she is. We have no idea. We have no idea who this woman is. Um, all we know is that verse, in verse 3, that the narrator, John, as he tells us this story, it tells us that she was caught in adultery which is actually more vague than it sounds. Uh, really, she's being accused of adultery at that point in verse 3. Uh, this is important because we're talking about the law. This is a legal proceeding. So in our uh, kind of modern day and age, we might say she's being indicted right here. The charges are, are being brought, but she's just being indicted. However, the, re the reality of this scene is that this, this woman is not the focus here at all. She may be the prisoner, but Jesus is the one on trial. Look at the irony of this. Just think of, put all of this scene together. 
The irony here is that the scribes and the Pharisees are putting Jesus in the judgment seat. They're putting Jesus in the judgment seat, but not really. In reality, they're trying him, but they're doing so by putting him in the judgment seat. But they don't really put him in the judgment seat. Jesus has already said back in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, he says, for the, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He has already said this to them. That, he has given, that the Father has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He's already said this to them. And they think they're putting him in the judgment seat. Nevertheless, they lay out the case there in verses 4 and 5. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were alleging that she was found, that she was caught in the act. And if that was true, the law is very clear. So here is that law. I know I'm giving you a bunch of law today, but this is all important. Here is that law. It's Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. It simply says this, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, you shall purge the evil from Israel. But they make two slight changes to the law here when they, when they make their argument in verse 5. Um, the first is that stoning is not specified there in Deuteronomy 22, 22. It just says that she must be put or that they must be put to death. Um, but they claim it's stoning is the law. They claim that it's specified. And the second is that both the guilty man and the guilty woman were to be put to death. That's significant. At this point, we, we should see this for what this is. This is a lynching of this woman in order to entrap and ensnare Jesus. They could care less about her. They're going for him. For him. She's expendable to them. This woman, they say. Such women, they say. You can hear the contempt in their voices. They're clearly treating her as a, as a means to an end. They were using the occasion of her adultery to entrap Jesus. But, but look at how they do it. They do it by misusing the law. They stated emphatically there, Moses commanded us. But that's a twist of the law. They twisted it. Right here is how we often look at the Mosaic Law. This is how we often look, even as Christians, at the law of God. We use it as a weapon. Let me give you one example. Leviticus 19, verse 28, says this, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. That's a ceremonial law about the pagan worship of the dead not about getting some, some ink. It's not about getting a tattoo in our modern day. We could talk about that another time, but that's not what that's talking about. It's talking about the, the, the for the dead. It's a, it's a pagan ritual. But listen to what David says about the law. In Psalm 19, his famous passage, Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. Over and over and over again in the law, in the, uh, the first five books, particularly from about Exodus chapter 19 through the end of Deuteronomy, and specifically, we are told, and no one knew this better than the scribes and Pharisees, we are told that they, the ancient Israelites, were to observe the law, to remember the Lord, to worship the Lord, to purge evil from among God's people, and to set His people apart as a, as a holy people. In keeping them, David says, there is great great reward. Yes, we break God's law. And when we do, 
often the weight of punishment can be crushing. No less than the Apostle Paul said this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? I imagine... And it's just imagination, but I imagine something similar was going through the mind of this woman. Who will deliver me from this body of death? There's an answer to that question. It's Paul's very next statement. He asks the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And his very next statement is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then in the next couple of verses, just a couple of verses later, he says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But these scribes and Pharisees, they're only interested in in using or, or misusing God's law to achieve their own purpose of destroying the one who came to give life. This woman is inconsequential to them. She's a a, a bit player in this narrative as far as they are concerned. Not worthy to be named. Not worthy to be remembered. Certainly not worthy to be brought home after he issues his judgment. They weren't doing this to purge the evil of adultery from their midst, as the law required. They certainly weren't doing this because of their fear of God. That's what verse 6 there says. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. They weren't doing this to purge the evil from among themselves. Now it's at this point that, really in the middle of verse 6, that people often get distracted. Myself included. But we often get distracted at this point. So I want to give you kind of two points of clarification. The first, I said this before, the woman is not the main character here. We have... And the second is where people really get distracted. We have no idea what Jesus wrote on the ground. We have no idea what he wrote. It does not tell us. It doesn't tell us anywhere, and there's really no point in speculating. It could be fun, but there's no point in speculating what he wrote because we have no idea. They're just guesses. Um, However, I do want to point out another connection to the law here. Remember, this is a Jewish legal proceeding, okay? Exodus chapter 31, verse 18 says this, And he, that is God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Written with the finger of God. That's Exodus 31, 18. Jesus is the author of the law. Look again at verse 6, and then he does it again and says it again in 8. In the middle of verse 6, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Verse 8, he says, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Jesus is the author of the law. Moses is just a delivery man, right? God is the author of the law. And when the scribes and the Pharisees challenge Jesus with the, with the legality of the law of God, they're speaking directly to its author. They've even asked him to sit in judgment of his own law. What do you say? He said to them back in chapter 5, verse 27, and he, that is the father, has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. The Father gave him this authority, and they are coming to him now, pretending that they're giving him this authority. Let's see what you have to say. 
The joke's on them. At this point, we've, we've merged into the territory of, of grace and mercy, too. Can you see it? Look at verse 7. Look at his answer. He can, they continue to ask him. He's bent down, writing in the ground with his finger. They continue to ask him, and he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? When he first, excuse me, when he first starts writing in verse 6, they continue to question him. They continue to really accuse him. What do you say? This is what the law says. They're probably quoting the law. (coughs) I imagine. It's just imagination. This is a courtroom, so they're probably going straight to the law. And he answers with just this one statement. This is the only thing he said to them. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, this statement goes in the same category as judge not, lest you be judged. It's one of those verses that we like to throw around. Um, We like to memorize this or maybe even mismemorize it to defend ourselves. But that's not what's going on here. In fact, Jesus is actually sort of giving them permission. But even more than that, (coughs) this is actually a forceful command. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. It's a command. It's actually a summary of the law. Um, But do you see what Jesus is doing here? He goes straight to the law to answer them. He's emphasizing the the purity of God's people. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. He's emphasized the purity of God's people, the holiness of God, the holiness that he requires of his people who are called by his name. Listen again to the law, Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 to 7. If there is found among you, within any of your towns that the Lord has given you, A man or woman who does evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them. And adultery, adultery is always symbolic of idolatry. They really are accusing him of idolatry, of blasphemy. He says, has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden. And it is told you and you hear of it, you shall inquire diligently. And if it's true and, and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing. And you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. He goes straight from adultery to idolatry. Go ahead and purge the evil from your midst. Yes, she's guilty of adultery, but they are guilty of idolatry. They have made the law into an idol. They are twisting the law for their own purposes. This whole scene is it's, it's actually pretty surreal. The author of the law, who sits in judgment over the law, and this is his ruling. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Do you understand that this is justice? This is justice, for the wages of sin is death. That's justice. On the one hand, Jesus calls on them to do their duty and start stoning her. But on the other hand, on the other hand, he reminds everyone, remember, this isn't just a conversation between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. 
All the people are there observing this. And he reminds everyone that they must not have any association with this crime, with this sin. These witnesses, the scribes, the the Pharisees, and all the people, they must not be guilty in any way of the sin of adultery. The law said, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward, the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Don't miss the double meaning in Jesus' interpretation of the law here. That's what he's doing when he says this. He's interpreting the law. He's issuing a judgment. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. On the face of this, in the moment, under the law, as they stand there in the temple, Jesus is not calling for sinless perfection. The law does not require justice to be administered by perfectly sinless witnesses. We understand this. Let me use a different sin as as an example. The law required that those who would administer the death penalty on murderers must not themselves be murderers. The same is true for adulterers or any other sinner that faced the death penalty under the Mosaic law. So on the face of it, Jesus is saying, yes, purge the evil from among you. Yet the other meaning here, the deeper, the more significant meaning for us in all of this is that Jesus is the only one here who is innocent enough, no matter the charges. He's the only one here who is holy enough. He's the only one in this whole scene, or even in all of the scripture, who is righteous enough to be, the, to be the one to cast the first stone or any stone for any of these sins. Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's Romans 3, verses 23 to, to 26. And that's exactly what Jesus does for this woman here. That's exactly what Jesus does for us. He does not put you to death for your adultery. He does not put you to death for your idolatry. He does not put you to death for your sin. This is the the relationship between the law and the gospel. This is grace and mercy. This is not Jesus saying, oh, no, 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 don't hurt the poor woman. This is Jesus saying she's guilty and deserves death, and so do you. And as the author of the law And as the one who sits in judgment over the law, Jesus alone is worthy to condemn her to death. But he doesn't. He passes over former sins. He doles out grace instead of judgment upon her. He shows mercy instead of condemnation. And then in verse 9 here, for some reason, we honestly don't really know, other than, other than God's grace, we don't know why, but for some reason these accusers get up and leave one by one, beginning with the oldest. And as they leave, we see the mercy of God. He has just saved this woman. James Montgomery Boyce, he was the pastor of, uh, I think, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, He said this, Obviously, there was something in the gaze of the Lord Jesus or in the tone of his voice or simply in the power of his presence that got through to these men, unrepentant as they were, and left them powerless. Think of the efforts they had gone through. Think of the plotting. Yet they were destroyed in a moment when they were confronted by the God who masters circumstances. We don't know why they got up and left. 
other than his judgment, his ruling in verse 7 was just. And they knew they couldn't carry out the condemnation. So they get up and leave. And now she's left with the judge. This judge who's the only one who not only can condemn her, but he's also the only one who can take away her guilt, her sin, her shame. Because Jesus, this judge, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John told us that in chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist told us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so in verse 9, as they begin to leave, all the people, the scribes and the Pharisees, all of them, so that only Jesus and the woman are left, and no longer is she just this woman or one of such women as they had called her. Jesus instead treats her with respect. You can see the tone of voice change, or Jesus' tone of voice, um, as he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus treats her with respect, and then even in verse 11, simultaneously offers her two things that she needs more than anything else. Forgiveness and repentance. Look at this again, verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. There's no other judge. Paul had cried out, Who will save me from this body of death? Then a few verses later, the end of Romans chapter 8, after asking that question, after glorying that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he says this, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think of this woman. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, that is Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, who is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's what this looks like right here. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But he finishes this not just with forgiveness, but he also calls her to repentance. See, when Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, he was at least, remember this is a courtroom, he was at least talking about her adultery. He was at least talking about her violation of the law. She could live to see another day. But if she truly repented, if she truly gave up her sin, ran from her sin and clung to Christ, ran to Christ, then it also means for her, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. And this call to go and sin no more is a call to freedom. Repentance in our, in our society has become an ugly word. But repentance is a call to freedom. For you and me, the rest of the story here is Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's what repentance is. That's what Jesus is saying to her. 
That's what Jesus has said to us. Repentance is the freedom of freedom. Repentance is the freedom of freedom. And do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Repentance is the good news of the gospel. It's the experience of grace and mercy. It is running to God. It is the freedom of freedom. We don't know what the outcome was for this lady. He just says, go and sin no more. He calls her to repent, to stop her life of sin. And for us, this is salvation. Go and sin no more. Doesn't mean she's never going to lie again. Doesn't mean she may even will fall into lustful sin again. It means she's going to run to her Savior and run from her sin. John Owen famously said in his um, mortification of sin, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's what repentance is. Freedom of freedom. Let's pray. God, as we look at these verses, as we see the grace and mercy of our Lord, as we see the law used as a weapon, but, uh, but the law is, brings freedom, your law is, in keeping your laws, there is great reward. The Lord Christ is the only one who fully kept the law. Because we are the adulterous woman in this story, broken and defeated because of sin, yet we have a Savior who shows us through his love the gospel. We love because you first loved us and sent your son to pay the penalty for our sin. And so we can go and sin no more depending on you. Help us to stand firm, Lord, and not submit again to a yoke of slavery because for freedom Christ has set us free. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.